0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist.
1: The long-awaited trade agreement among Canada, the United States, and Mexico will be ratified next week. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made that announcement today on the final day of a three-day cabinet retreat. There was a lot on the agenda during meetings in Winnipeg, but Trudeau says the new North American free trade deal will be top priority when Parliament resumes.
0: The federal government has been grappling with a host of incredibly challenging issues in 2020. As promised in January, ratification of CUSMA, the Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement, has captured considerable attention with several committees studying Bill C-4, the bill aimed at ratifying the deal. Over the past month, I've had the opportunity to appear before two of those committees, the House of Commons Standing Committee on International Trade, and the House of Commons Standing Committee on Industry, Science, and Technology. In each, I discussed the digital law and policy implications of the agreement with similar remarks that focused on four issues, copyright term extension, the culture exemption, privacy and data protection, and internet platform liability. This episode features my opening remarks and provides a sense of the follow-up questions that arose from MPs from across the political spectrum. It's worth noting that soon after the witness appearances, the Standing Committee on International Trade released its report on Bill C-4 with no changes, meaning that lobbying pressure to immediately extend the term of copyright was rejected. Thank you very much. Good morning. As you heard, my name is Michael Geist. I'm a law professor at the University of Ottawa, where I hold the Canada Research Chair in internet and e-commerce law, and I'm a member of the Centre for Law, Technology, and Society. My areas of specialty include digital policy, intellectual property, privacy, and the internet. I appear today in a personal capacity representing only my own views. As you know, the typical approach before a committee on bill study is to examine the bill, identify provisions to support, and areas for amendment. In this case, at least for my areas, what really matters is is, is not what is in the bill, but what's not. From a di- with the most notable issues from a digital policy perspective, which obviously have significant implications uh, for issues addressed by this committee, won't be found by and large in Bill C-4. Rather, they're found in KUSMA itself, and they typically limit Canada's policy options for future policy reforms rather than require immediate legislative action. This raises a significant challenge since the flawed aspects of the deal can't be fixed in C-4, Rather, they require a change in a trade agreement that is largely presented as a take-it-or-leave-it deal. I'd I'd like to briefly discuss four issues along these lines, some of which could create costs that run into the hundreds of millions of dollars for Canada. Copyright term extension, the cultural exemption, privacy and data protection, and Internet platform liability. I'll start with copyright term extension, and I I know you heard about that earlier today. The IP provisions in the agreement raise some significant concerns, but none more so than the requirement to extend the term of copyright from the international standard of life of the author plus 50 years to life plus 70. The additional 20 years is a reform that Canada rightly resisted for decades by both liberal and conservative governments. By caving on the issue, the agreement represents a major windfall that could run into the hundreds of millions of dollars for rights holders and creates the need to recalibrate Canadian copyright law to restore the balance. For example, perhaps addressing some of the issues you heard earlier on digital locks. The independent data on copyright term extension is unequivocal. It creates less access to works, higher costs for consumers, and no incentive for new creativity. In the the words of Professor Paul Held, one of the leading researchers on the effects of term extension, it represents a tax on consumers to the benefit of publishers with no obligations to benefit the public. Now, this committee's copyright review conducted, conducted an extensive review into the issue and recommended establishing a registration requirement to obtain the additional 20 years of protection to mitigate against the disadvantages of term extension and increase overall transparency of the copyright system. Term extension doesn't appear in C4 because the government negotiated a 30-month transition period to address the issue. I think the government has rightly not rushed into term extension and we should be taking full advantage of the transition period to follow this committee's recommendation to establish a registration requirement for the additional 20 years that would allow rights holders to get the additional protect who wanted to get the the additional protection they're looking for while also ensuring that many other works enter into the public domain after their term of protection expires after life plus 50 years secondly the cultural exemption Much like copyright term extension, there is no reference to the cultural exemption in Bill C-4. That's because the exemption doesn't require legislative reform. However, I'd argue that the exemption is one of the most poorly understood aspects of this agreement, at least in the areas I focus on. Consistent with government claims, the cultural exemption covers a broad range of sectors with a near-complete exemption for Canada. While the government has emphasized its broad scope, it rarely speaks of what the U.S. demanded in return namely the right to levy retaliatory measures of equivalent commercial effect where Canada relies on the exemption. The retaliatory measures provision means the U.S. is entitled to levy tariffs or other measures that have an equivalent commercial effect in response to Canadian policies that would otherwise violate KUSMA if not for the cultural exemption. Since the provision does not limit the response to the cultural sector, the U.S. can be expected to target sensitive areas of the Canadian economy, such as the dairy sector, in order to discourage its use. That was the U.S. strategy recently when responding to a French plan to levy a new digital tax, which led to plans or threats to levy U.S. $2.4 billion in tariffs against French goods, such as wine, cheese, and handbags. Now, how could this play out in a Canadian context? The recent Broadcast and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel Report, the so-called Yale Report, contains what I would view as many ill-advised recommendations on regulating the Internet and online news services, such as news aggregators. Should the government adopt the broadcast panel recommendations on content, the U.S. would have a strong case permitting retaliation with measures of equivalent commercial effect. Panel proposals that may violate the new trade agreement include requirements to pay levies to fund Canadian content without full access to the same funding mechanisms enjoyed by Canadian firms, licensing requirements for internet services that may violate NAFTA standards, and discoverability requirements that limit the manner in which information is conveyed on websites and services. Now, I emphasize that I think this is bad policy that should be rejected. However, for the purposes of this review... Note that the policy flexibility to enact reforms in this area is severely limited by the agreement which establishes the possibility of retaliatory tariffs in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Third, the digital charter and privacy. Limitations on Canadian policy also arises in the context of privacy and data protection. Unlike the cultural exemption, which permits violations of the treaty subject to those retaliatory tariffs, on the issue of privacy, Canada would run the risk of simply being offside its commitment under Kuzma. Once again, there is no provision on point in C4. There's no need for one because Kuzma prohibits certain privacy-related provisions rather than requiring them. For example, and this I know came up in the previous panel, KUSMA includes a provision restricting data localization, which refers to measures requiring data be stored within Canada. It features a more restrictive provision than that found in the CPTPP. There are some general exceptions, but the Canadian government will be restricted in its ability to establish localization requirements under the agreement. Those implications, I think, are far-reaching. Consider the wide range of policy issues with data right now. Canada's digital charter and its proposed privacy and data reforms, concerns about data sovereignty, AI-related issues, and fears about the competitiveness of Canadian businesses in relation to Canadian data. Now, the Canadian government itself has established localization requirements as part of its cloud computing policy. Indeed, there is a recognition that data localization may be needed in some circumstances. Yet, under this agreement, Canada has limited its ability to regulate. So, too, for the issue of data transfers, as KUSMA also limits the ability to restrict them. As we enter into a discussion with the European Union about the adequacy of Canadian privacy laws, there are concerns that a data, data transfer provision could leave Canada between a proverbial privacy rock and a hard place, with the EU demanding certain restrictions and Kuzma prohibiting them. Now, finally, Internet platform liability. A similar dynamic arises in the context of internet platform liability, which raises the question of what responsibility lies with internet companies for third-party content on their sites. The issue captures large players such as Google and Facebook, but frankly almost anyone that offers user comments or content. There's no provision in C4 on this either. Once again, the reason is that Kuzma restricts policy in the area rather than requiring a new provision. Now, Kuzma includes a legal safe harbour for internet intermediaries and platforms for content posted by their users. The rule is designed to provide internet platforms with immunity from liability, both for the removal of content as well as for the failure to remove content. Now, contrary to some claims, that does not mean that everything goes. Sites and services are still subject to court orders and the enforcement of criminal law. Further, intellectual property rights enforcement is also exempted. However, some have now argued that the responsibility of Internet intermediaries should go further, with potential liability for failure to act, even in cases of harmful, albeit legal, content. Now, I think that issue raises important freedom of expression concerns and questions about how we balance freedom of expression and speech with protection from harm. The issue with C4 and Kuzma is not to debate where Canada should land. The broadcast panel recommended liability for online harms, even if the content is legal. Others, myself included, would argue that liability should rest with illegal content, but to create liability for legal content is to render Internet companies judge and jury over what remains online, thereby further empowering the large Internet companies, as well as limiting competition and freedom of of speech. Yet the key point here is that there is a policy debate to be had. And under Kuzma, Canada has already committed to a position, one that restricts our ability to establish liability for third-party content. I look forward to your questions. The questions from MPs on both committees touched on all of the issues raised in my opening statement. For example, Tracy Gray, a Conservative MP on the Industry Committee, asked about the implications of copyright term extension and the benefits that would arise if we established a new registration requirement.
1: Thank you for being here, Mr. Geist. I have uh, followed some of your your podcasts, so uh, do find them interesting. A uh, couple of quick questions. I wanted to start off. You, you actually had started off um, uh, talking about the innovation and competitiveness, and uh, with this extension and how that could potentially restrict that. And I'm wondering if you can talk uh, a bit more about that, how uh, that impacts uh, the industry, but also. Uh, how this impacts public organizations such as libraries and um, educational institutions with accessing information going into the future?
0: Sure. Thanks for that question. And thanks for the podcast plug as well. Um, In fact, I would note that this week's podcast, which dropped just a couple of hours ago, features an interview with Paul Held, the expert on copyright term extension. And we specifically talked about his research into the area and the costs and consequences of term extension. He's done some really interesting work that looked at things like Amazon data to try to identify what is the impact of access to works when they're in copyright and once they fall into the public domain. And what he found was that, in fact, works that are out of print but still in copyright become much tougher to actually access. It hurts both authors and the public, whereas once works fall into the public domain, they become more widely accessible. He looked at Wikipedia data to try to put a value on the value of the public domain by noting the use of pictures that that are in the public domain and what that value would be. And he noted that it runs into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so in direct answer to your question, we have now multiple studies that point to the enormous cost that comes from term extension. What that would do in this case is literally stop our public domain from expanding for two decades, for really an entire generation. What that means from an education perspective, at a time when if you go into our schools, especially at, uh, at, at, at elementary and uh, high school levels, you find that public domain works still play a critically important role. In fact, the Ontario Book Organiz- Publishers' Organization conducted a study on the role of Canadian works in our schools, and what they found was that the public domain still constitutes an important part of what we are accessing and using in our classrooms. Mm-hmm. If we extend the term of copyright, we increase costs. We make those works ultimately less accessible and more costly for education.
1: Great, thank you for that. Um, I wanted to touch base as well on registration requirement, and you did you did mention it just really briefly. Uh, there seems to be a, a number of different uh, beliefs ar- around this, uh, whether it's it's good or not, and and um, I'm wondering if you can maybe explain the um, analysis as to why uh, that would be something that would be appropriate for the industry to move forward with?
0: Sure. So, it, it is, as I it is something that was recommended by by this committee as part of the Copyright Review. And I think what it seeks to do is strike a balance between what we now face as a obligation under the treaty. The committee also noted that it would not extend the term of copyright, but for an obligation under one of these treaties, and now we, we face that. And what registration would do is essentially say... We will meet the international standard of the Berne Convention of life plus 50, and that Berne Convention does not allow you to put forward registration requirements. But that's for the standard of the life plus 50. For that additional 20 years, that effectively can fall outside that registration requirement found in the Berne Convention. And so what we can do is say, we are at life plus 50 plus 20 we will give the option to extend the term of copyright. So if you have witnesses and others others that say, we think we would benefit from term extension from that extra 20 years, they can get it but for the overwhelming majority of works for which people don't have those same kinds of concerns who are oftentimes happy for it to enter into the public domain. Bear in mind, we're talking about life of the author and now 50 years after they've passed away. Those would fall into the public domain without that extension. And so I think it would put Canada in the position to really be a model for how to more effectively deal with term extension and do a better job of striking the balance between, on the one hand, providing protection for those that want it, while on the other hand, doing what we can to preserve the harm that comes from term extension. Over at the International Trade Committee, Conservative MP Michael Cram asked about the prospect of retaliation should Canada choose to use the cultural exemption, thereby triggering the possibility of retaliatory measures.
2: I have some questions for uh, Mr. Geist uh, with respect to the cultural exemption. Could you elaborate a little bit on... What exactly changed in the new NAFTA compared to the old NAFTA with uh, respect to the cultural exemption, in particular, the uh, retaliatory measures uh, that are now available to the U.S.? Yeah.
0: Not, I, in fact, not a lot has changed. We've added we added a couple of things. There were a couple of things that were added within this provision um, where we talked about broadcasting and some other issues. But, you know, I raised this to emphasize that This notion that we've taken culture off the table, and that's a big win, I think really doesn't tell the whole story of what it means to regulate in the current cultural environment. And that, in fact, and this may be unavoidable, but if we move forward with different kinds of proposals or see the kinds of proposals, let's say that we saw from the Yale report, that do envision reforms within Canada's digital sector, within Canada's cultural sector, that quite clearly run afoul of the kinds of things that we've now agreed to within this new NAFTA. What we are doing is, I think, potentially setting ourselves up for the U.S. to say, if you want to do this, we've given you the right to do it, or you've negotiated the right to have that policy flexibility, but it's not free in order for you to be able to take advantage of that, we are entitled to be able to levy measures of of equivalent commercial effect, and we're free to pick and choose on whatever industry we want to have that kind of effect. So, for example, if you're talking about new kinds of levies on large Internet companies, which is one of the proposals in the Yale report, potentially talking about hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that they will have to pay into that system, if the rules that we have... Uh, are seen to violate the, the new NAFTA. What that means is that the U.S. will be entitled to levy against whatever they want to target in Canada, measures of, of equivalent commercial effect. There is potentially a huge cost involved.
2: And could you uh, describe some of the current uh, cultural programs or policies that uh, Canada has in place now that could be put at risk uh, for some of these retaliatory tariffs from the, or retaliatory measures from the U.S.?
0: Sure. So just to use, I guess, the Yale report to give you a couple of examples. One is this notion that the Yale report recommends having just about almost any website, certainly the large services like the Netflixes of the world, but it potentially captures many others paying in either through levies or other sorts of fees. The problem with that system is that we at the same time have systems in place that are only available to Canadian businesses. So we say we're going to make it like for like. Canadian businesses paid into this. Now foreign businesses will have to pay into this. The problem is the only beneficiaries in some instances are the Canadian businesses. That's not like for like. That may well violate some of the services provisions that we have within NAFTA, and that may lead to retaliatory measures. We've also got, for example, discoverability requirements, the CRTC determining potentially what sites news aggregators have to link to. That may violate some of the rules that we have right now in terms of free flow of information. There's a cost there. The U.S. might be entitled to retaliate.
2: And just to be clear, you said that these retaliatory measures would not be limited to the culture sector. Was that- That's exactly right.
0: It's, it's measures of, of equivalent effect. It does not specify that it's got to be in the cultural sector. We can expect the United States to target sectors where they think it's going to have the most impact, in an effort to try to dissuade Canada from violating um, some of the provisions in the agreement by virtue of relying on the exemption.
2: So, for example, down the road, if there were some new uh, online streaming service that uh, were all Canadian and that uh, and the U.S. felt that that was crowding them out of the Canadian market to the tune of $100 million a year, let's say, that means the Americans could turn around and slap $100 million on maple syrup exports or anything else uh, going across the border the other way
0: no i'm not well, i'm not sure that th- that having an all canadian service would be would be a violation although if you had a situation where Canadian government decided we want to have an all-Canadian service, we're going to fully fund it and require others to pay into it, then yes, foreign services might say that's an unfair advantage to a Canadian-based service. Here's the cost or the commercial effect, and the U.S. would be entitled to levy measures of equivalent commercial effect, and they could target whatever sector they like. Privacy also attracted considerable attention at both committees. For example, NDP MP Daniel Blakey asked about the data localization requirements, the USA PATRIOT Act, and what the treaty would mean for Canadian privacy. I just want to follow up on a couple of those questions. and In particular, with respect to data localization, I mean, as part of the concern, when we're talking about the United States too, they've got the PATRIOT Act, and I think one of the incentives for data localization requirements for Canada would be ensuring that Canadians' data isn't covered by the Patriot Act. I wonder if you want to speak to that a little bit on the level of individuals, but also um, commercial information that we may not want to have stored. Sure. I mean, it raises an interesting point. I mean, for those, those, The people may recall that, this, this, that that particular issue arose nearly 20 years ago when the, the province of British Columbia was seeking to outsource some of its health information, and that health management information was going to go to the United States, and there was, con- there was concern about the applicability of the USA Patriot Act. I would say that in the current environment, it speaks to a broader concern, uh, and that is that the U.S., if we were to think of a spectrum of privacy safeguards around data, with the Europeans and the GDPR being viewed as having some of the strongest rules, the U.S. in many respects are often viewed as having the most lax rules. Uh, They have fairly weak rules. And in fact, this agreement builds in the ability for the U.S. to continue to have fairly weak rules without widespread privacy rules. Effectively, it's it's as little as tell people what you're going to do with their information. And as long as you abide by what you've told them, that's good enough. So it doesn't set a particularly high floor. So I think that there are concerns about the transfer of data into a jurisdiction, notably the United States, where some of those safeguards may not be as strong with respect to privacy. Questions about the ability for our own privacy commissioner to ensure that Canadian privacy, r- privacy rules will be applicable. And I think real doubts amongst many Canadians about whether or not their personal information will be appropriately safeguarded in that kind of environment. This final exchange with Liberal MP Randeep Sarai, who asked about how to deal with the digital policy challenges raised by Kuzma, highlights how difficult it can be to address digital policy within trade negotiations, which invariably requires trade-offs that have little to do with one another. Uh, Mr. Geist, uh, you you gave a good analysis in in the sense of saying we should ratify this, but we should work on some of the privacy and other provisions in the next 30 months to correct it. What do you say are the the fundamental key uh, uh, provisions that need to be protected uh, for Canadians in this digital age, and what are the foremost ones that uh, need to be done? Sure. Well, let me just clarify. I think with respect to the issue of copyright term extension, that's where there is this 30 month phase-in period or transition period, and on that issue, uh, I, I I think that we ought to follow the recommendations that we saw from the copyright review. In terms of moving ahead with ratifying and solving this, I mean, candidly, the, the challenge is I'm not, I, I, I don't know enough about the sugar industry or about labor practices or about the myriad of We're other issues. About- no, just to highlight yep. how difficult it becomes when what you're effectively being asked to do is do I trade my privacy for greater access of beet sugar or better labor standards? I don't know. Uh, I mean I know what I know around privacy and I think one of the challenges we face in the current trading environment and it is particularly pronounced in this deal is that there are many issues that do not come out are, are not as obvious right up front in part because we're not required to make any changes. Canada like many countries will often negotiate by saying our starting point is As long as we don't have to change our existing laws, we're okay. The problem here is that we have locked ourselves in on a number of different issues, and it includes on copyright, includes on privacy, uh, as well as some of the other issues that I've highlighted. And I do have real concerns that as we get into some of those issues, and they're taking up a lot of bandwidth right now for a lot of people, we may find ourselves having essentially given away some of the potential policy solutions because we're restricted now by virtue of this agreement. And it's not obvious to me that there's a solution in that regard. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy.